morning we're going to find ourselves about halfway through our series in James, uh, in James chapter 3. And this morning we're going to be talking about the power of our words. Now I think everyone would probably agree this morning that words matter. In fact, of all the people that think words matter, uh, word choice is probably most important to marketing professionals. You might not know this about me, but one of my undergraduate degrees is actually a, a degree in marketing, and we spend an awful lot of time when we are in the world of marketing uh, worried about word choice and worried about wordsmithing and how uh, words communicate certain things. And so let me give you some uh, examples where despite their experience, despite their expertise, uh, even marketing professionals can miss the mark. And these are uh, kind of humorous. Uh, years and years ago, when Coca-Cola first started uh, shipping to China, they named their product something that when it was pronounced sounded like Coca-Cola. The problem is, is that the words and the characters that they had to use to spell that out actually meant bite the wax tadpole. And so Coke didn't do a great job uh, marketing their product early on. Now, Pepsi came along behind them, and they didn't do a very good job either. Uh, they translated their slogan, which at the time was, Pepsi brings you back to life. And literally, in Chinese, it came out, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. So in very many instances, people did not want to drink Pepsi. <laughs> when it came to... Uh, Spanish-speaking countries and the uh, muscle car of the, what was it, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the Chevy Nova. Nova didn't sell well in Spanish-speaking countries because no va means it does not go. <laughs> and so poor choice of words. And then this is my absolute favorite, again, in Spanish-speaking countries. Coors uh, took its slogan, which was turn it loose, and it uh, ended up translating into suffers from diarrhea. And so it is no wonder that Coors did not sell well in the Spanish-speaking world. Uh, all of these rather humorous uh, examples of word choice. But if we're honest this morning, we probably all have examples where poorly chosen words have caused incredible harm. Had a little rhyme that we said when we were kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Listen, that's a cool little rhyme, but it's a total lie, right? Because words matter. And if you have yet to be convinced of this, I hope by the end of today, by the end of our time in James chapter 3, that you will be fully convinced of the importance of taming our tongue or managing one's mouth. And so while you turn there to James chapter 3, you know, sometimes in our culture, uh, we look at someone who says whatever they think, uh, we say that person's bold or courageous, they are a straight shooter, they say it like it is. And James says, not only are these things not to be esteemed, he says there's actually a spiritual problem that is both dangerous and has deeper roots than we realize. And so join with me as I read James chapter 3, I'll be read, uh, starting in verse 1. And James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships. Though they are so large, they are driven by strong winds, uh, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell itself. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human 
can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we also curse people who were made in the very image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring forth? Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You know, right off the bat here in verse 1, there's a seemingly odd statement uh, when James says that very few people should desire to be a teacher. In, in a time when the gospel was really uh, taking off like wildfire, it would seem like this of all the times that we needed to have teachers, like this was the time. They, they didn't have the Bible yet. The letters hadn't all been written and collected into what we now know as the New Testament. And so they didn't have the truth of the gospel. And so they needed leaders to prophesy truth. They needed leaders to uh, speak against the false prophets. They needed the leaders to uh, come and help write things down, uh, teach about sin, teach about church formation, teach about evangelism, teach about uh, how to relate to one another as Christians, how to uh, teach about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of these things. That, that were new to them. On top of that, uh, the New Testament church, uh, because they didn't have the Bible, because there wasn't a printing press yet, uh, it was really a culture of orality. That meant that words were preserved by the spoken word, not yet by the written word. In fact, uh, it wasn't until the Romans came in just a few years and destroyed all of Jerusalem where the written word became the main way of preserving our words. But up until then, it was a, a culture of orality. On top of that, you had uh, the Jewish tradition. Most of these Christians in the church that James was a part of, uh, most of the Christians were previously Jews. They had been saved out of the, uh, Jew their Jewish heritage and the Jewish culture. And in the Jewish uh, culture, it was highly esteemed to be a leader or a teacher or a rabbi. You may remember Jesus. He was called rabbi or teacher oftentimes. In John chapter 6, he had crowds that would follow him around and everybody desired uh, to be a teacher like Jesus had been. Listen to what, what one commentator uh, wrote about rabbis. He said, rabbis were master teachers, and they were accorded great honor and respect by their fellow Jews. As reflected in the gospel, many rabbis relished their prestige and privilege. In some Jewish circles, rabbis were held in such high regard that a person's duty to his rabbi was considered greater than that to his own parents. Because his parents only brought him into the life of this world where the rabbi would introduce him into the life of the world yet to come. It was written that if a man's parents and his, rabbis, his rabbi were captured by an enemy, the rabbi was to be ransomed first. And so if you walk out of here this morning hearing nothing else, it saved the pastor first, okay? Amen? So here you, thank you. So here you have this early church. All of these truths are new. None of them are written down yet. Most of the disciples come from this position where uh, one of the things that you esteemed and held higher than anything else was to be that of a teacher. And the first thing that James says in verse 1 is that not many of you should become teachers. Not many of you should become teachers. How do we make sense of that? Well, I think there are two reasons. The first is that some people want an audience without understanding their responsibility. They want to pontificate. They, they desire the, the esteem and the influence. They want to be seen as having all the answers but they don't understand the responsibility of what it means to teach God's word, to represent God's word in such a manner that it changes people's lives. It's a great responsibility, James says. And then the second reason is right there in, uh, in verse 1, a teacher will be judged with greater strictness. 
Over the years of having grown up in the church, I've seen uh, lots of leaders. I have seen uh, lay people as well. Countless people have had a desire to have a huge audience, to have their influence spread as widely as possible while having little to no understanding of the responsibility that comes along with it. And yet James says to these wannabe teachers, he says, be careful what you ask for. But as we read these verses about taming the tongue, uh, what's so interesting really in all of chapter 3 is it feels like there's three separate thoughts going on here. Um, in fact, I've heard all of these uh, messages over the years, completely different, disconnected messages in chapter 3. And so are they disconnected? Do you have this warning about teachers in verse 1 and 2, then taming the tongue in verses uh, uh, 2 through uh, 12? And then there's another passage that we'll look at next week about uh, seeking after godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. Are these three disconnected thoughts? And then on top of that, if he's uh, just talking to teachers, which I believe that he is, if you uh, step back and you really study this passage, I think verse 1 is the banner for the rest of the uh, chapter, then those of us who aren't teachers, those of you that aren't teachers, do you ha really have to listen to what James is saying? Are you really accountable for your words if you're not a teacher? And the answer in verse 2 is no. Look, look at verse 2 real quickly as James starts to broaden the audience of who he's teaching to. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. He says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to also bridle his whole body. And so he broadens it out beyond teachers. He says, all of us stumble in many ways. In fact, that word stumble there uh, is a metaphor for sin. So we all sin in many ways. And one of the many ways in which we sin is through the many words that we speak. And so think of it like this. Think of verse 1 as it introduces the rest of the chapter. Uh, because teachers are influencing others, because teachers are speaking on behalf of God, their words will receive stricter judgment, verse 1. But because this is such a struggle for all of us, he says that if you contain your tongue, teacher or not, he says it's a sign that you have brought your whole life perfectly under the lordship of Christ. Think about the magnitude of that statement. He doesn't give a long list of things that you have to check off. He says, if you contain your tongue, you can bring your whole life perfectly under the lordship of Christ. Our words matter. And so here's why James is able to make such bold statements. Because he recognized, number one, that words are powerful. And so let's camp out here for a few minutes. Our words are powerful. Sometimes... We minimize the power of our words because we use so many of them. And we don't want all of our words to have power. We want to minimize some of the stupid ones that come out of our mouths. Uh, research suggests that uh, the average person will spend 20% of their life uh, using words. Now that's for men. Uh, the number, the percentage goes up a little bit higher. For women, up to 98%. <laughs> a little bit of a joke. Uh, but in all truthfulness... Uh, God has designed, he has wired men and women a little differently, and so women uh, traditionally speak a few more words than men do, but all of us together, uh, even those that don't speak very much, speak a lot of words in their lifetime, and those words, uh, the, the, the compilation of those words, the totality of those words, the individuality of those words uh, signify that our words are powerful. Right in Genesis chapter 1, we see the power of the spoken word when God speaks all of creation into existence, out of nothing. Ex nihilio is the Latin term for that, that uh, the power of his words spoke forth creation. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the power of words to deceive people. Uh, when Adam and Eve are deceived and they, uh, it leads to the fall of humanity. 
We speak so many words. Our words are powerful, and every word is powerful. That's why Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, said, every idle word will be judged. That's really scary. Every idle word will be judged. Apostle James leaves no doubt as to just how powerful our words are. Some of you are already sleeping, so smack your neighbor and say, wake up. I want you to hear this. I don't want you to miss this. We're going to walk through. James is going to give three specific examples of the power of our words. But uh, as we get through this list, as we work through this list, listen, I don't want you to miss any of it. I don't want you to get to the end and ever again excuse any harsh or unloving words that come out of your mouth with, like, sometimes I just don't, I, I say things that I just don't mean. As a matter of fact, the power of words is so important that James mentions the tongue every single chapter in the book of James. Five times, uh, there are at least every chapter he mentions the tongue and the power of the tongue. And so why give something so much attention? Well, uh, three reasons. Our words, first of all, have the power to direct. Look back at verse 3 again. If we put bits into the mouth of horses, uh, we can guide their whole bodies. Look at the ships. They're so large and driven by strong winds, yet guided by a small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. James gives these illustrations that would have been easy to understand. I grew up on uh, Lake Michigan. My dad had a 30-foot sailboat, and we used to race that across Lake Michigan from where we uh, lived in the Grand Haven area and off to um, Milwaukee. And then we would race there overnight, and then we'd race back by day. And it was always amazing. You would have these huge sails with this huge square footage uh, of, of um, surface area that the wind would grab and could push those uh, boats anywhere that the pilot wanted to go as long as that little rudder, it was about this big, would direct that boat. In fact, that little rudder could direct that boat right up against the wind. It was an amazing phenomena how a small little rudder uh, could steer that boat. But it's not just a 30-foot boat. Uh, boats that are hundreds, if not thousands of feet long, cruise lines, uh, freight liners are steered by relatively small rudders. A, a horse. A, a horse might weigh 900 to 1,000 pounds. A racehorse, uh, one of the Clydesdales that we see in the commercials, might uh, weigh somewhere around 2,000 pounds. And yet it's a teeny little bit uh, that a tiny little person can use to direct that horse wherever he wants it to go. Our words have the power to direct, and that's what James is saying. The smallest member of the body, the smallest organ of our body, the tongue has the ability and the power to direct everything a person does. Just think about how your words have the power to direct things. It was your words that first led to conversations that directed you towards marrying the person that you're married to. It was your words that led to conversations that uh, the person offered you a job, the job that you now have. Uh, words that lead to conversations that encourage you to make decisions that have changed your life. I, I, I've told you this before. Some of you might not have heard it uh, the time that Pastor Brad called me. So I was in the, the business world about 12 years ago. I was building houses. I had helped start a home building industry, I think a, a home building company in the home building industry. And about that time, I'd build about 900 houses. I would go on to build about 1,000 houses. And uh, Pastor Brad called me one day and he said, hey, I want to take you out to lunch. And I said, hey, where, where are we going? He said, the sky's the limit of $20. <laughs> so we went to Applebee's. And we went to Applebee's down. It's no longer there down on uh, Fields Ertle and uh, Mason Montgomery Road. It's since been torn down. But I can take you uh, in my mind back to the booth that we sat in where he said, hey, listen, uh, I'd love for you to consider coming and, and joining what God is doing here at Liberty Heights Church, joining us full time. His words had the power to direct my life. 
Not only do our words have the power to direct, James says they also have the power to destroy. Look at the second half of verse uh, 5. It says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell itself. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord our Father, and with it we also curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Let's take some of these descriptions that James uses and put them in kind of a, a bullet list to understand the power of our words. He uses the description of a fire. If left unchecked, it destroys, just like words. He uses the description, our words are a world of unrighteousness. They stain the body. They're set on fire by hell. They're a restless evil. They're full of deadly poison. They're used to curse people. Listen, James is not playing patty cake with his church here. Like This is the type of sermon uh, that would have made them wince because he wanted them to be aware of the power of their words. Listen, we could stop our sermon right here this morning and all of us should make a commitment to never, ever again offer up the lame excuse of, I know that I said that, but it was just words. When we're using words, when we're spewing out words from our mouth, as James says, deadly poison on people. Think if we were in an environment this morning where we were comfortable being vulnerable with each other, we would probably have many, many uh, powerful testimonies uh, from people who have had hurtful words spoken over them or even loving words withheld from them. And those words still haunt you. Uh, those words have literally tried to destroy your life. And that's the point that James is trying to make here in verses 5 through 9. You know, our words uh, show up in all type, uh, types of forms because speaking to, other, speaking to each other is such a normal part of our lives. And so the more words that we use, especially if we're teachers, the more opportunities we have uh, to use words poorly. We can't prove it scientifically, but we think that there's uh, potential in certain words, certain types of words, there's uh, greater potential for sin. Think about that some of us are prone to belittle others. Some of us are prone to talk too much, which is a manifestation of pride. There are white lies, coarse joking, arrogance, criticism, words of condemnation, words that induce doubt, sl uh, slander, sly suggestions. Like this list could go on and on. Manipulation, selfish talk, flattery, gossip, words of shame, words of blame, words of aggression, angry words. The list goes on and on and on. And when you take all of these words, all of these types of words and the potential uh, that they have to lead you to sin, and you couple that with the power of words to destroy, then we're in a hot mess. And, and really what we ought to be doing is memorizing verses like Psalm 141.3 and using it as a daily prayer. It says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. About eight or nine years ago, I actually wrote this verse out on an index card. And I taped it above my desk. And it's been, it's, it's been there so long that it's turning yellow. And it's not every day that I look at it. And it's not every day that I pray that prayer. And you can usually tell which days I haven't prayed that prayer. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I'm always astounded when you read the reports of some of these wildfires out west that burn millions and millions and millions of acres of land, and yet these investigators can trace it all back, and they can usually find that it was started by a small, errant spark. That's exactly the word picture that James is using to illustrate how our words have the power to destroy lives. 
So James says our words have the power to direct. They have the power to destroy lives, but they also have the power to delight. They have the power to delight. Look at verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour, uh, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond uh, yield fresh water. Now, at a glance, it's easy to really hone in on the uh, focus on the warnings or the correction that's offered in these verses. In fact, the second half of verse 10 says these things ought not to be so. And what he's talking about is the hypocrisy of Christ being in us, and yet these unloving, hateful words coming out of us. And so let me make plainly what he's saying in verses 11 and 12. He's saying that a person whose life is marked by habitual, nasty, caustic, unloving, harmful words, he's saying, is not a Christian. That's what he's saying. It doesn't matter how much religious activity you have next to your name. It doesn't matter if you've attended all the Bible studies, if you know all the right verses. He says you are fooling yourself. And the fruit of your words gives evidence that the root of your heart is not connected to Jesus. Jesus says you cannot draw fresh water from a salty pool, verse 12. This was a term that uh, my grandma used to use. It's kind of an old-fashioned term. We don't hear it very much anymore. Uh, but she would say when somebody was saying something nasty, she would say, aren't you being salty? And, and we compare that with uh, Jesus who is the perfect picture of living water. He's the pure uh, fountain of eternal life. And so you see what James is getting at. He's saying it's impossible for pure living water to be inside of us, and yet the habitual pattern of our life is salty words coming out of us. But we said that our words do have the power to delight. And so we don't just focus on the negative warning in these verses and gloss over those first six words, from the same mouth come blessing. You know, the book of James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. But if we go back to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, listen to some of these verses uh, about the beauty of our words. Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. In other words, wise words are both beautiful and valuable according to this verse. Proverbs eleven twenty five: anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Listen, Proverbs was Prozac before Prozac was cool. You have Proverbs 18.4, wise words are like deep waters. Wisdom flow from the wise like a bubbling brook. Proverbs 10.11, the words of the godly are a life-giving fountain. I I love the the, the beauty of the the terms that he's using here, these deep waters. Wisdom flows from the wise like a bubbling brook. Water is like fire. It depends on the situation, whether it has the power to delight or the power to destroy one of our family, family's favorite places in the last couple years to go on uh, vacation, especially during the kind of the fall or winter months, is Sanibel Island down in Florida. It's right off the coast of Fort Myers, and it absolutely got destroyed by Hurricane Ian. And one of the devastating things about that storm is uh, not only did the, the heavy storms come through, 150 mile an hour sustained winds that literally blew buildings over and tore out their foundations. There's nothing but sandy beaches in some spots where buildings used to exist. But the worst part of that, uh, the whole hurricane was the floods that got sucked in behind it. And the tragedy right now is that in Florida, apparently, when you have hurricane insurance, you also have to have a separate rider for flood insurance. And so now the insurance companies are denying 
uh, some of these claims because they said, well, it wasn't the hurricane that destroyed your house. It was the flood that came in afterwards. And these, the flood pictures are absolutely astounding. And so we see the power of water in this certain situations when it's uh, chasing after a hurricane have the power to destroy, but it also has the power to be wise like a bubbling brook. Like deep waters, the words of the godly are a life-giving fountain. So yes, our words have the ability to destroy, but they also have the ability to bless. I love this morning that we come and worship and we don't just listen to a team on stage, that we use our words to praise God. We use our words to pray. We use our words to bless people. We use our words to counsel people. We use our words to share the gospel with people. We use our words to um, speak truth and love over people's lives. And just like some of you have been haunted by words that have destroyed, others of you have been sustained by words that have been spoken at key times during your life by key people in your life. Words are powerful, both in their ability to destroy, but also in their power to delight. But there's one more thing that we want to remind you of when it comes to our words, and that's our second uh, teaching principle this morning, that words are revealing. That our words are revealing. I, I don't know if it's happening more now uh, because we're just more aware of it because we live in an age of cell phones and so more and more things are getting captured. Like if you're a dude in here and you're my age, aren't you glad that we didn't have cell phones to record all the stupid things that we did uh, when we were younger? Like there is no record anywhere of a lot of the stupid thing. And my mom and dad are watching this sermon and uh, listen, you'll never know uh, because there's no record of what happened. And so maybe because we have these smartphones, uh, it just seems a lot more instances of this. But you have a lot more occasions where these uh, oftentimes famous people are saying something that's racist or derogatory or inflammatory, and they have to issue a public apology. And it often goes something like this. I'd like to apologize for my words, because those words do not reflect a true representation of who I am as a person. Or sometimes they're less formal, and they say, it's not like me to say that. Or, or, or times they say, I don't know what got into me. Listen, I know what got into you. It was the devil, right? And I'm only a little kidding. Because that's what James is saying this morning. I want you all to listen uh, to this part right here. I want you all to look up here. Because if you miss this next part this morning, I think we'll have wasted our entire time together. Because whatever is in the well is going to show up in the water. Whatever's in the well is going to show up in the water. In other words, the words that come out of your mouth are the truest indicator of what's really in your heart. This means that the words you say really are a true representation of who you are as a person. Both the words that you say, and I think we can add a modern day twist to it, the words that you type. Right, So if you never speak a word, but you're on social media quite a bit, and you have a lot of caustic things to say, you have a lot of unloving things to say, those things are still coming out of you. This idea that whatever is in our hearts, it comes out of our mouths. It's not my words. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We've tried so hard to teach our girls this. We tried so hard to model for them using positive examples. Uh, unfortunately, many times we taught them this through negative examples. At least I have. Th this past week, I did something that was purposely annoying to my oldest daughter, Taylor. I did it with the sole intention of getting her goat, right? 
Uh, I think that's my job as a dad sometime. That's your job as a dad sometime, just to do those little annoying things. And uh, so I did that, and she turned around, and she doesn't know I was even going to say this. She had her fists clenched, and she gritted her teeth, and she had a little smile on her face, and she says, you are so lucky that angry words didn't just spill out of my heart. I was the proudest papa. Like, she gets it after all these years. She understands Matthew 15, 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. She didn't say angry words came out of my mouth. They came out of her heart, and they didn't in that case. Churches, for this reason, there's no such thing as a person who's been saved by a loving Christ who has a life dominated by unloving words. So where do we go from here? Let's go all the way back to verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Listen, a person who can tame their tongue is a person who is living with their heart completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. Why? Because our words are the overflow of our hearts. And so the reason that our words can direct our lives is because they spring out of our hearts and what's in our hearts drives our behavior. I've told you about the sign we have hanging on our wall, Proverbs 4.23, that says, above all else, guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. And so how do I know that those things that are in my heart are really directing the course of my life? Through the very words that are spilling out of my mouth. I told Pastor Brad this week, that I'm not sure that everyone that has said, man, that's a great message, uh, has totally understood the gravity of what James is trying to teach in the book of James. Over and over, he's given us these tests for the uh, testing of the genuineness of our faith. This is the sixth test that he's now given. And over and over and over, and just like all the first five tests, when the pattern of our life is dominated by unloving words, uh, James doesn't say our faith just needs a little pick-me-up. He doesn't say that we need to run back to church and and plug in our battery. He he doesn't say that we need to sort some things out, that we just need to make some minor adjustments here or there. No, he says that our faith is phony. He says it's counterfeit. He says it's worthless. He says it's dead. And that is a scary thought. Listen, if that doesn't make you wince, it's not because James is not a good communicator. It's probably because you are self-deceived. James says you're so self-deceived that you might not even realize you're not even a Christian. This past week, uh, one of my dear friends at the Mason campus came up to me and they said, Pastor, that was a great message, but his head was looking down at the floor. He says, man, that was a sure punch in the gut. And I said, listen, you're lucky you only have to listen to it for 37 minutes. I have to hear it preached at myself the entire week. And it really has been a punch in the gut. This week has been a punch in the gut. Listen, if this message this morning, if you're hearing it and you're thinking about all the other people that need to listen to it, all the people that you want to send the link to, listen, you've gotten it wrong. This message is for you. This message was for me this week. And I'm sorry that you all had to listen to it because God was trying to do something in my life this week. And so as we wrap things up this morning, if you're struggling with this, you don't need a new vocabulary. You don't need a new filter. Uh, I heard a pastor one time use the illustration that we have different filters on the shelf uh, at our house. And so we have a filter that when we go to work, we put this filter in that filters our words, and it catches the, appro- the inappropriate words. 
When we go to church on Sunday, we have a different filter. Now it's a heavier filter. It's harder to use. It's a little more exhausting because uh, we don't want the pastor or those that are around church to hear the things that we say. But when we get home, we take that, put it back on the shelf, and we put the filter in uh, for family and friends and uh, you know, those that we love. And it's, uh, it filters a lot less. Listen, stop having a filter. Throw the filters away. You don't need a filter. You don't need a new vocabulary. What you need this morning is a new heart. You don't need greater willpower. You don't need greater stick-to-itiveness. You don't need to try harder. What you need to do is to lay hold of the promise of Jesus the Redeemer, the one who never spoke a word of deceit, the one who alone has the words of life, the one who can take a stiff, stubborn heart of stone that Ezekiel says and turn it into a heart of flesh. Why is that important? Because a heart of flesh is moldable. It can be shaped to the image of Jesus. And so this morning, let's not leave out of here committed to turning over a new leaf. I've turned over a lot of new leaves in my lifetime. Let's walk out of here this morning with a commitment to give a heart completely to Jesus, with a commitment to have a heart that is completely surrendered to Jesus Christ in every single way. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads this morning. Let's just spend a few minutes to, to wrestle with this text to wrestle with the words of James, the words of Jesus. If you bow your heads and maybe even close your eyes, that just helps with the distractions that might be going on around you right now. We say all the time that the Bible's not a curriculum to be mastered. It's a mirror to be gazed into. James said a few chapters ago, Uh, to be careful not to look in the mirror and walk away and forget what you saw. So one of the things that we do is we stare deeply into that mirror of the gospel and we let the gospel uh, penetrate our hearts and do surgery. It says in Hebrews 4.12, do surgery on our hearts. And so would you allow God right now, would you give him free reign in your heart to do surgery? Would you confess to him specific ways this week in which you have not tamed your tongue. Don't speak in generalities this morning. But speak in specifics. Confess in specifics. Some of you this morning, maybe these speech patterns aren't dominating your life. But you come face to face with the reality of what Jesus said, that you'll be held accountable for every idle word. And so would you... Right now, repent and ask for forgiveness for those idle words. Would you be honest with yourself this morning? If your life is marked by nasty, hateful, caustic, unloving words, would you confess that this morning? Would you say, Jesus, come into my heart this morning and give me a heart transplant? Reorient the affections of my heart. God, change me and grow me to be more like Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God, give me victory over the tongue so that I can show the world that my entire life is surrendered to Jesus. Heavenly Father, this morning I pray for those that are in this room that make no claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Pray this morning that 
they would see and feel your loving kindness and be drawn towards repentance this morning. That they would understand that it's uh, the words of their mouth are not dependent on the filter that they have in, but it's dependent on what's going on in their heart. God, this morning, would they turn their heart over to you? God, for those that claim to be Christians this morning, but their life is dominated by speech patterns that don't speak to uh, having Christ in them, God, would you give them the boldness this morning to face that reality? And despite religious activity, despite Bible knowledge, God, that this morning they could come face to face with the genuineness of their faith in this test that's been given by James. That, God, they would repent. That they would turn and walk in newness of life. God, I praise God for those that are in this room this morning that have tamed their tongue, that give testimony to the fact that their whole life is surrendered to Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for those dear loved ones in here that have been such an example to me that I've learned so much from. God, I pray that you would raise more people up like that. God, I pray at the end of the day that the world would come to recognize that it's not through man's anger, anger that has drawn anyone to repentance. It was through the kindness of God that brings everyone into relationship with Jesus Christ. And so help us to do a more incredible job at sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And that with the same mouth that we bless the Lord, that we would never again use it to curse someone made in the very image of God. God, we don't have the strength to do this on our own. And so we need you to be our strength this morning so that we can declare, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We praise you this morning for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.